Hello everyone, I'm your host James Patton Rogers and this is the Warfare Podcast. All this month on Warfare we've been focusing on marking 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. And we've covered everything from Tony Blair's relentless political drive to drag Britain into war through to the rise and fall of Saddam Hussein. This episode, however, looks at one of the most important legacies of the war, the rise of ISIS. To talk us through the surprising origins of this brutal terrorist organisation and the way it was finally defeated, I've invited a bit of a journalistic legend onto the podcast. This is the Pulitzer Prize winning author and Washington Post journalist Joby Warwick. Now, Joby is the author of Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, and it's from his research that he reveals insights and key moments that give us a whole new understanding of one of the world's most abhorrent terrorist organisations. Hi, Joby. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, and especially as part of our special series on the Iraq War, which started, well, 20 years ago this month. And as part of this, I wanted to focus on some of the legacies of the conflict. And it's up for some debate, but I would argue, at least in my work, that one of the direct legacies of the Iraq War is the rise of ISIS. And as the author of Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, I wanted to see if you agreed. Do you think that if it wasn't for the Iraq War, there wouldn't have been an ISIS? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there was certainly an Al-Qaeda, there was certainly a jihadi movement, But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The leadership, this separate, very powerful, very brutal movement was a direct result of the U.S. invasion. I don't think we would have had an ISIS without the U.S. invasion in 2003. You see, it's fascinating to think, isn't it? Because a lot of the terrorism and counterterrorism literature, in fact, going back to the 90s when they first started to try and track Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, was that when you leave power voids, power vacuums in nation states, whether or not that be due to poor national governments or the erosion of sovereignty, or perhaps, in this case, the invasion by a great power of that country, the toppling of the leadership, and then this power vacuum, this political vacuum forming in a country, it's because of all all of that in places all around the world that you see the rise of terrorism. And is that what we see here? Do we see the fact that towards the end of the war in Iraq, when the US is getting ready to leave in 2011, there's the arguments that there wasn't really a proper end game there by the US military. Is Iraq left in, well, is it left in a state? A state where it can't govern all of its sovereign territory. And so therefore it leaves the door open for ISIS. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many historical echoes. And we, as a student of history, as you are, and I know many listeners are, it's fascinating and a little bit disheartening to see the repetition. But as we all well know, Afghanistan was allowed to become a lawless, stateless vacuum. Out of that vacuum, we get al-Qaeda. No question about that, that this is a sort of direct result of this this failed state that allowed al-Qaeda to sort of incubate and to become what it ultimately became. And the story of ISIS is, has many of those same ripples. The U.S. withdrawal in 2011, uh, while it was something that the Iraqis and the Americans agreed upon and perhaps it was inevitable, but the way it happened and the conditions that prevailed after the U.S. withdrawal was this opportunity for this struggling, at the time, terrorist movement to coalesce and to become something much more dangerous and become something international, which it really wasn't before. Well, we know about al-Qaeda. 
we know about Osama bin Laden. There was lots of confusion when ISIS first arose as to whether or not they were a break-off or an affiliate of Al-Qaeda, whether or not this was Al-Qaeda 2.0, whether or not it was even more powerful than Al-Qaeda had been before, and if we were going to see attacks like 9-11 happening again around the world. So take us back to this early start of ISIS. When can we say that, well, when can we say it first began? Well, it really has to do with one individual. And the book I wrote, Black Flags, is largely his story. And he's important because he's someone who was an Al-Qaeda wannabe. He was someone, a young Jordanian man who was got head of a thuggish, literally criminal background as a young man in Jordan. But then, like a lot of young sort of hotheads in his time, decided to go off and become a holy warrior, went to Afghanistan just to fight the communists and ends up becoming radicalized, ends up wanting to be part of Al-Qaeda. And th he was so extreme and so violent and so unlearned, he did, really had no real understanding of Islam or what he was fighting for, that Al-Qaeda essentially rejected him. He was allowed to fight as sort of cannon fodder for these various warlords in Afghanistan for a while, but his real ambition was to become part of Al-Qaeda. And when Al-Qaeda said, no, you're too crazy for us, then he sets off to, to form his own thing. And he goes to, to Western Afghanistan, starts his own training camp, starts to draw in like-minded people, mostly from the Levant. And the sort of the core of this group that later becomes Al-Qaeda in Iraq, that later becomes ISIS, that's how it started, as someone that was really part of this larger universe of Sunni jihadis, a lot of folks really, really thought everything of, of bin Laden and thought he was the greatest thing ever, but had their own distinct flavor. And part of the distinct flavor that this guy Sarkawi brings to his organization is the criminality. He's essentially, at heart, a brutal thug, and he creates an organization in his image that doesn't respect the normal jihadi rules about we don't kill innocent women or men or children and we don't necessarily go after people from different sects because they're not quite like us. He had this sort of burning fire that was that anybody who's not doing exactly what we say is a heretic and deserves to die, whether they're Muslim or Christian or Jewish or whatever. And that's the unique thing that Zarqawi brought to the equation. So what time period are we talking here when Zakawi starts to operate, establish this group, and then transform into Al-Qaeda in Iraq? It's interesting. Another sort of accident of history was he had been locked up by the Jordanians. The Jordanians realized there was a pretty dangerous kid. They put him in jail. They stuck him out in a prison with a bunch of other jihadis way out in the desert in southern Jordan. And there he probably would have remained forever. No one would have heard of him. But in 1999, which is really my starting point, the king of Jordan dies, King Hussein. And there's a tradition in Jordan where the death of a king normally brings some kind of clemency or there's pardons are granted, there's a chance to clean the slate, political prisoners are released. And somehow as part of this general amnesty that's granted in 1999, Zarqawi and his entire gang of crazies ends up being released and let go. And that's the moment that he decides to go back to Afghanistan to join Al-Qaeda to start this new adventure and ends up doing his own thing in, in, in the western part of the country instead. So that's really the starting point. He's in Afghanistan at the time of 9-11. He has nothing to do with 9-11. He has no idea that this plan was underway. But like the rest of, of these various groups, when the U.S. invades Afghanistan, they scatter. They head off to different places. And he finds a hideout in the mountains between Iraq and Iran and sort of the Kurdish area in the northeast of, of Iraq. And that's where he is when this plan for a U.S. invasion starts to coalesce. And that's, that's sort of our next chapter. So he's in Iraq 
in 2003. He's travelled there, fled the invasion in 2001. Does he try and flee again, or does he bring his group together and stand up against the US forces? So, as I mentioned, or sort of intimated, Zarqawi is not a genius in the traditional sense. He's not educated. He never finished high school. But he did a few things quite well. And one of the things he, he did well was predict the invasion. He had this little gang up in northeastern Iraq. They were trying to make a name for themselves, trying to figure out how to make waves and make a splash. They were doing things like experimenting with chemical poisons and killing dogs with cyanide and just, just, just all kinds of horrible, nasty stuff. But they really hadn't figured out a purpose. And Sarkawi starts to see, you know, he's just reading the news like everybody else. He says, the U.S. is going to invade Iraq. I'm going to be there to fight the superpower. This is my destiny. When the Americans come, I'm going to be here to meet them. And sure enough, when the invasion takes place, Sarkawi and his cell move to Baghdad and start to lay the groundwork for what they hope would become an insurgency, an uprising against the Americans. He thought it was his sort of religious calling he had some like-minded people around him, and after the sort of the, the Iraqi security infrastructure falls apart, he's able to attract all kinds of Iraqis, including former army officers and former intelligence people, who coalesce around him and really like this idea of fighting back against the Americans and punishing them, not just for the invasion, but for their empowering of, of the Shiites, who they hate. And this is what really begins to give him some resources and some power very soon after the U.S. invasion in 2003. So does he get involved in the Battle of Baghdad? Because that lasts around three weeks. It's led by the US Army's 3rd Infantry Division. We know that there's thousands of casualties and deaths in this battle. Over 2,000 Iraqi soldiers are killed. Is he involved in the Battle of Baghdad? Or does he come in after that period, when things seemingly start to settle, but we know with hindsight that there is this brutal insurgency mixed with civil war that is brewing? Yeah. So once again, his, his timing and his strategy on this was spot on. So he he does kind of wait out the fighting. He's not going to get involved in fighting well-trained American troops. So he's laying back and waiting to see what happens. And what happens, as we know, is in the weeks after the fall of Saddam Hussein, is chaos. There's looting, there's reprisal killings, there's all kinds of turmoil in the streets. There's a lot of unhappiness, especially among the sort of the Sunni elites who used to run the country and dominated the Kurds and the Shiites and suddenly been pushed out of power. And so there's lots of discontent that a man like Sarkawi can begin to harvest. So what he does over the summer of 2003, when no one really knows what's going to happen, the Iraqi army has been sent home, the Ba'athist party has been disbanded, Sarkawi decides to provoke. And the way he does it is by going after international targets with sort of spectacular terrorist attacks. And he goes after First, the Jordanian embassy, he attacks the UN mission in Iraq and blows the place up. There's a, a UN headquarters in a hotel in Baghdad, and Zarqawi destroys it with a truck bomb and starts to go after everybody who could be an ally or give legitimacy to the American occupation. He starts to systematically attack them and drive them out of the country. So no one's left, really, but the Americans and the Brits and a few others, and uh, surrounded by a lot of people who are getting more and more angry because of violent conditions in the country. So he creates this thing, he creates this mood of danger and terrorism, and then exploits it perfectly in order to create this movement, which becomes Al-Qaeda in Iraq later on. 
You see, that's really interesting because one of the key strategies of terrorists is you remove any of the state or support by international organisations from a region and that way you create a fertile environment for you and your organisation to come in to provide certain resources. I mean, when I was out in the Sahel and we were looking at Boko Haram, it's all about supplying mopeds to the young men in the town so they can go about and, and actually get some sort of living in the region. It's about providing basic services, access to food, access to water, you know, and slowly the population becomes reliant on you and you're able to really make the most of the fact that you're not challenged by the local society around you and it's from that that a terrorist organisation can grow. Is that what's going on here? You target the soft targets, you target the UN that's trying to deliver aid in the area, trying to maintain some level of peace and security. If you can get rid of them and make sure they pull out, you've got the whole region to yourself. Exactly. How smart was this? And again, by somebody who we wouldn't expect to have that kind of strategic vision, but it was a very deliberate move to get rid of anybody who could help build civil society in Iraq, anybody who could so help bridge the gap between Sunnis and Shia. Zarqawi did the opposite. After he started going after these Western aid targets, then he starts going after symbols of the Shia religion, starts to attack their mosques, starts to attack their marketplaces and their neighborhoods with the deliberate intention of not just driving away aid organizations and creating chaos, but igniting a, a war, igniting hostility between Sunni and Shia. And his idea was with, in the middle of all this chaos, he would emerge. He began to formulate this idea that he would not just be victorious in kicking out Americans, but there would be the seed of a caliphate, something that would be a new Islamic holy empire, and he would be the spark that would bring it all together. The sad thing about that, of course, Joby, is that we know now that anything between 200 and 300,000 Iraqi civilians are killed during this war. And much of that comes from the fact that there is destruction of some of the key and vital infrastructure in the area. The fact that these supplies are hampered and they are stopped and these organisations are thrown out. The fact that you can't get aid into the communities, but also the very, very real situation that there is a civil war being stoked by people like Sakawi. And so can we start to wrest some of the blame for many of the things that go wrong in Iraq and after the war at his door? Was he that successful in causing complete and utter chaos? I think a couple of things on that. He, he certainly had the vision, as we described. He knew what he wanted. He had a real strong idea about how he was going to get there. But he had lots of helpers. And we have to remember that you know, an early decision by the American forces was to disband the Ba'athist party disband the security apparatus. So these were, for good reason, seen as people that were problematic. They were Saddam loyalists. They pretty awful people, a lot of them. But they kept the peace. They had the network that allowed them to, to maintain law and order in this country. And by dismantling that, you not only just create chaos because you've set the police or the army home, but you've also put a lot of people out of jobs. And all these elements end up working to Zarqawi's advantage. What better for him to have all these really unhappy former Saddam Secret Service people that they're just really angry and want to do something, can't get their jobs, can't get pensions. They become allies. So not only of this chaos, but also lots of helpers, partly because of Zarqawi's vision and his sort of being there at the right moment, but also because of all the things that the American Occupation Force did in the beginning just to make things easy for him. So is he now operating as al-Qaeda in Iraq? Is this an official entity? Is this a, a kind of endorsed 
offspring of the main Al-Qaeda group? Is this something that's endorsed by Osama bin Laden? You mentioned previously that they see him as a bit of a loose cannon. Is it at this point that he's kicked out of Al-Qaeda, which to me seems like no small feat? It's pretty impressive that you can get kicked out of a terrorist organisation. You must truly have a bit of a screw loose on many levels. But is it at this point that he's operating under Al-Qaeda, or is this kind of an unofficial shroud that he uses the name to gain some sort of clout? So there's this really interesting thing that happens in 2004, where the Zawahiri, the number two, who really doesn't like Zarqawi at all, Bin Laden, who, as we know, has rejected him, they start to see success in Iraq. The rest of Al-Qaeda is on the run. They're not really able to get much together. But in Iraq, something's happening. And there's a lot of talk about the things that Al-Qaeda likes to talk about, attacking the Western powers and, and driving the Crusaders out of the Middle East. And so eventually, Bin Laden looks at this success and says, well, we can make this guy part of our group. And so they reach out to Zarqawi and say, why don't you become essentially the first Al-Qaeda franchise? So there's a secret exchange between these two. Bin Laden says, my good son, we, we love what you're doing in Iraq. Why don't you become part of our brand? And so they create an organization. It's Al-Qaeda in the land of the two rivers, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It had other names as well, but this is in 2004 is when Zarqawi gets essentially Al-Qaeda's blessing. It doesn't remain that way because eventually Zarqawi, despite his success, starts to do things that appall even Al-Qaeda, like behead people on video and torture people with power drills and every kind of depraved, awful way of inflicting pain and, and killing people. This is becomes Zarqawi's calling card. And after a while, it becomes too much for Al-Qaeda, but they've essentially let the guy in. He's now, for better or worse, he's part of the Al-Qaeda movement. And of course, Zarqawi milks that to, to maximum advantage. He becomes something he uses to recruit followers. Look, I'm, I'm part of Al-Qaeda. You need to join me. And so you see in 2004, 2006, a really impressive uh, migration of recruits from North Africa, from Levant, from Europe to join this movement. Similar to what we see later on with ISIS a decade later, but quite an impressive number of recruits coming from other parts of the world to join what they see as a really successful, really powerful, if quite extreme, a movement that's pushing it back against American occupation in Iraq. Yeah, quite extreme to say the least. It sounds odd to say that Al-Qaeda, a group that is responsible for the death of thousands, a direct attack on New York City, has some sort of, of, of line drawn in the sand. Even certain things carried out by terrorist groups are, are too much for them. So where do things start to, to go wrong for this relationship of convenience between Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Al-Qaeda central. Not that Al-Qaeda really exists as a central movement at this point. I think I was reading Nelly LaHood's Bin Laden letters, and in that, Bin Laden is, is hiding as best he can. He's ordering his members of Al-Qaeda to hide. You know, stay low, stay out the sight of drones, don't draw attention to yourself, and we can re-emerge at a later date. But there's so many people at this point, especially those who are younger in the group, who are seeking to make their own name, who are continuing to go out there, but they're being killed by drone strikes and being hunted down or put in prison. But here you've got Zakawi who's going off on his own and doing some success. So does he start to see himself as being greater than Al-Qaeda? Is it him who forces this fracture of the group? Is it him who ends this marriage of convenience? You can see in his writings, Zarqawi did leave us a fairly significant body of his letters, of some video postings that he did, and he expresses his annoyance 
really at Al-Qaeda for its reluctance, for its, for its cautiousness. And on the other side of that, you see a lot of notes from Zawahiri in particular, the number two in Al-Qaeda, telling him, tone it down. This is not helping our brand. When you're attacking Shiites, this is not something that Al-Qaeda ever specifically did under bin Laden's leadership. They were not trying to start a war between Sunnis and Shiites. It wasn't good for their brand. When you commit atrocities and then you just you show them to the entire world on video, that turns a lot of people off. This is not something that will typically you know win you hearts and minds. And so they kept begging Zarqawi to kind of back off. You do what you're doing and you know go after the Americans, go after the Saddam loyalist, but stop doing this really egregious stuff. And he wouldn't listen. The thing that he did quite well in hindsight was to carry out an insurgency and yet to do it with such good security and so shrewdly that he was able to dodge what became one of the biggest manhunts in Iraq in those early years of the occupation because the Americans were pretty desperate to find him, to stop him, and yet he completely eluded him for more than two and a half years. So he's got a lot going on for a young man who's at the time in his, his early 30s, who's got all kinds of ambition, all kinds of things he'd like to do, things he'd like to create. But he's got a lot of enemies. He's got the Americans, and particularly you know, what becomes this sort of our special forces team, Stanley McChrystal and others, kind of leading the hunt for him. And a lot of folks in Al-Qaeda proper are not really happy with him either. So he's a bit out on a limb despite his success. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. So tell us, you mentioned that Zakawi left us lots of writing. So I'm assuming that his time comes to an end in this story. What is it that happens to Zakawi? Because when we think of ISIS, we think of perhaps al-Baghdadi as one of the main leaders who led the attacks itself and the establishment of Islamic State, of the Islamic State itself and on that territory and the invasion of Fallujah and everything else. So how do we have that transition between Zakawi and al-Baghdadi? Yeah. So all those other names, the people that we were more familiar with as leaders of ISIS, such as Baghdadi, were all part of this early part of Zarqawi's cadre. Some of them spent time in prison and got to network and know each other there. But Zarqawi was the undisputed leader up until 2006 when the Americans finally caught up with them. And they did it essentially through good intelligence. They were able to discover one of his spiritual advisors, someone who was visiting Zarqawi regularly. And once they locked on to this advisor, they were able to trace his movements and at one point followed him to the town of Bakuba, where Zarqawi had a safe house. And there was this moment in the book that recounts how there was surveillance on the house and out of the house comes this stocky figure, 
in black garb that is unmistakably Zarqawi. And within a few hours, a couple of F-16s drop bombs in the house and he's killed. But after his death, the ISIS leadership is in disarray because the leader is gone. And also because special forces become better and better and better at, at finding lieutenants, the number twos, the number threes, and keeping this movement on its back heel. And eventually it's driven deep underground. By 2008, there's no operational cohesion. It's a ghost of what it once was. And yet at the same time, it still exists. It decides to change its name. It goes from being Al-Qaeda in Iraq to something that's a little more Iraqi-centric. It's called the Islamic State of Iraq. Later on, they add Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, which is ISIL or ISIS. But this core group that was once around Zarqawi, and when he was at his strongest, stays with the organization, goes underground for a while, but then reemerges under a new name, but with the same tactics, the same ideology, the same ambitions, just a little bit slicker and more streamlined than it was back in Zarqawi's day. So how does this possibly happen? Where do they get the resources from? One thing that we know about most terrorist groups is that we call them non-state actors, but they're usually linked to some sort of nation-state or pretty rich benefactor. So who is it who's propping up ISIS at this time? How are they able to go from an underground organisation that's had their leader decapitated through to an organisation that by 2014 is going to be literally taking territory? That's a good question. And it's partly, again, because of the nature of Zarqawi's personality. As we said, he's a thug at heart. He's a criminal. And a lot of their money, a lot of their fundraising is essentially criminal activity. Shakedowns, kidnappings, out-and-out theft. Later on, ISIS sort of institutionalizes this. And when they take over big chunks of Iraq and Syria, they just walk into banks and just take out all the currency. One of the ways that the Americans later on in, in the fight against ISIS tried to destroy their financial networks was by literally discovering where they were keeping their cash and then dropping a bomb in those locations. And you'd see literally millions of dollars in, in euros and greenbacks go up in smoke. But it was never an organization that received the kinds of charity support that Al-Qaeda did. That was lots of organized giving from wealthy people in the Gulf and other places. They collected their money mostly locally. And because they had this big network of former Iraqi elites, there were a lot of people in the organization that were able to help them get weapons, to help them get explosives. The money rolled in because of various criminal enterprises. And the Zarqawi model later becomes the ISIS model. This is the way they did things. Well, take us through what life was like under ISIS, because in January 2014, al-Baghdadi's forces overrun the city of Fallujah in western Iraq, and then parts of Ramadi. And then in Syria, they seize control of the massive city of Raqqa and drive out rival groups. And then Raqqa becomes the kind of de facto capital of ISIS. So what is it like in these cities once al-Baghdadi has taken over? Do you start to see those same ruthless practices that were put forward by Zakawi? Well, if you're a follower of ISIS, it's not such a bad thing. And I've interviewed you know, quite a number of people who lived in under the Islamic State in places like Mosul and Raqqa. And some of the Sunnis, uh, even people who were once bureaucrats in the Iraqi government and they had to switch jobs and now they're working for ISIS, would describe them as being, in their own way, very organized, structured. They got the trash collected. And more importantly, from their point of view, they kept the, the Shiites down. If you were a Sunni, if you were in good standing with them, they left you alone. Anybody else was, could be preyed upon. For everyone else, normal people living in these cities, the thing that would be most striking is the brutality. Because this is an organization that when they would 
find someone that was trespassing in whatever way by drinking alcohol or just suspected of colluding with their enemies. They'd make an example publicly with a crucifixion or a beheading. Public parks where children used to play and perhaps still did were adorned with the severed heads of people that they killed. People who were accused of being homosexual were pushed off rooftops. It was the most crude and brutal sort of Taliban type stuff. And yet ISIS managed to amp it up even a level further in doing things like burning people alive, which actually the Quran says you shouldn't do, but they did anyway because uh, one of the, so the beauties of ISIS from their point of view is since they didn't really know the Quran that well, they were able to abuse it in any way they felt like. It just justified the actions later. So it understates the case to say this was a, a very brutal place to live, a place where if you crossed the ISIS leaders any number of ways from if you're a woman, you, perhaps your hemline wasn't quite long enough, or the music you listened to, or your haircut, or your beard wasn't quite right. So these Taliban-like rules were enforced very strictly and very brutally in many cases. I mean, we call ISIS a terrorist organization, but this is true terror. This is rule by terror. This is keeping people down by some of the most heinous practices that you could possibly imagine. And then taking money from these people as well. And of course, making the most of the natural resources that are in the region. And all of this means that ISIS keeps growing. By June 2014, they've taken Iraq's second largest city. And then they move through to take Saddam Hussein's hometown of Tikrit. But is it at this point that they start to make a mistake, that Baghdadi starts to make a mistake? Because it's here that they start to threaten Shiite holy sites. And while the West is still trying to clamber together and understand how the rise of ISIS has happened, how they were able to move so quickly, and what on earth the West is going to do about this. And, you know, there's lots of political wranglings. I remember in the UK, there's a parliamentary vote. It's declined that the UK is going to get involved directly. You know, it takes a very long time after to the fact that democratic populations in the West do not want to commit their best, their brightest, their youngest, their mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, thousands of troops back into the Middle East. They've learned that lesson. So while the West is dragging its feet, you have Shiite holy leaders in Iraq. I think Iraq's top Shiite cleric who issues this call to arms, amasses these volunteers who then move to try and take on ISIS. Was that their turning point? Was that when things start to go wrong? One of the remarkable things about ISIS is its ability to piss off, if I can use the term, people all around them. They made enemies everywhere and everyone was afraid of them. The Shiites were, for very good reasons, they hated these guys because they were murderers. They, As you said, they attacked some of the holiest sites uh, of the Shia religion in Iraq and massacred pilgrims, killed many innocent people. The neighbors, the Turks, the Jordanians, others who just were looking at this phenomenon with fear, not only because of its methods and its ideology, but about the sort of the flow of weapons and the flow of, of fighters that were crossing their borders and, and coming to this, to join this thing. The Americans and the Europeans were appalled by these public executions of Westerners, starting with this journalist, James Foley, and then Others, Brits and French and Japanese and other people who were being captured and just barbarically butchered and then the, the videotapes just put out for the world to see. And so you see even Americans who tend to be, I think, isolationists, many of this, that's a kind of a goes in our a part of our DNA, but also just were so weary of any involvement in the Middle East. But you see sort of a core of Main Street America 
sicken because of these really brutal displays. And so when it's time for a coalition to, to form to fight ISIS, people were ready to do that. So the political willingness was there and nobody would dare to say no to it. We have to defeat these people and destroy them. And that became part of the galvanizing force that brought together eventually 87 countries into one of the largest and most ambitious military coalitions that we've seen for some time. And it didn't succeed overnight, but because of so many people, so many countries and so many groups arrayed against this organization, within two years, the caliphate was pretty much gone. And it took a bit longer to wipe out the last pockets, but ISIS as a caliphate was absolutely destroyed by 2018, early 2019. Well, take us through that end game, Joby. You know, it's not easy to cover an entire military operation in just one podcast, let alone the rise and fall of one of the most notorious terrorist organizations in living memory, if not ever. But tell us about Operation Inherent Resolve, that US-led operation to defeat ISIS. When does it begin? So it really begins in late 2014. The thing that pushes, I think, the Obama administration over the edge at the time was not just the videos and the horrific scenes that we're seeing played out, but the attack on the Yazidis up in the in the northern part, Sinjar Mountain, the just wholesale slaughter of, of these sort of ethnic groups that ISIS decided that it didn't like and, and wanted just to eliminate in an act of genocide. And so that pushes the Americans into initially just sort of dropping aid and then helping out with... They were dropping aid on the mountaintop, weren't they, Joby? You're awakening memories that have long since just rested there dormant. But I remember that terrible period where the world watched as the Yazidis were clambering to the top of a mountain safe haven to try and get away from ISIS. And all the West was doing at this time was just sending in aid before this military response came in. It was a truly difficult time. Yeah, and, and because of those really wrenching scenes... Uh, you can sense this moment when the political leadership in the United States and in and in Europe shifts, and there is a decision that, that these these people have to be defeated. In the beginning, I, I must say, in my interviews, there was a kind of a, a hand wringing moment just watching the one Iraqi city fall after another, and a tendency by the Americans to to blame. The Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki, he was just a poor leader. He had, did not take advantage of all the opportunities that, he had, that the Americans thought they had given him. They just decided to use his power to repress Sunnis and just created this problem for himself. And so there was almost a moment of, I told you so, in the very early weeks of, of, of ISIS's march across Iraq. But when it came to that Sinjar Mountain sort of last stand of the Yazidi people, I think leaders like Obama were physically sickened by what they saw and decided that they had to get involved in a more aggressive way. And looking around the world, they quickly were able to get lots of allies. And this coalition that built up, it was remarkable in its ability to, A, harness local forces. So a lot of the fighting on the ground was not by Americans or Europeans, but by uh, Iraqis, by Kurds, certainly the Kurds playing a huge part in this. So the military strikes, a lot of them carried out not just by American and British planes, but by Jordanians, by UAE jets. It's just a really broad and fairly enthusiastic, as I can tell you from my time, a coalition of diverse countries and interests all uniting in the cause of eliminating this awful thing that had popped up in the middle of 2014 and, and could not be stamped out quickly enough as far as many of these leaders are concerned. But it's not just the Americans and the Iraqis who are working together here to get an international coalition. ISIS are doing something similar. They're calling out across the world for people to come and join them in this new state, this place that they can build themselves, this caliphate that they've long wanted to create. Do we know how many people end up joining ISIS from all around the world? 
So there's estimates all over the place, but 40 to 50,000 fighters is a number that we often hear. And these are people who came to help carry weapons and, and physically fight on behalf of the caliphate. But others, really interestingly, include whole families from Western European countries, from North Africa, who see some appeal, some draw to this idea of Islamic Holy Land, who buy into this notion that the Muslim world has essentially been hijacked by crusaders, that the Western countries came in, exploited Arab resources, and then gave them despots who, who took away their rights and destroyed their economies. And but here was whatever, for all its flaws and its, its ugliness, what was professed to be an Islamic sanctuary, a place where you can, where Muslims can follow their faith and live uh, as they believe they were supposed to with other Muslims. And so th there was some appeal to that. And, and it, I, I've been struck by people that I've interviewed who were educated, who came from relatively well-to-do or middle-class backgrounds, and still were willing to give up their homes and give up their families and, and the life they'd known and travel half around the world illegally to be part of this. And many of them got there and were disillusioned, but the sort of tide of people moving to Syria and Iraq in this period was quite remarkable. It's hard to sympathize with these people who were, of course, hoping to find some sort of paradise, and instead they are plunged into the middle of a war zone with their families. And we're still dealing with the consequences of that today, especially in the UK, where we have Shemima Begum, who's had her her citizenship, of a, being a British citizen, taken off her, and she resides in a refugee camp somewhere in, in northern Syria, likely never to return to the UK. But was at their heart, was there something positive that they were trying to create? Were they truly taken in by what we know now as being incredibly powerful ISIS propaganda to draw these people in? Or do we think that they always knew there was an heir to brutality to this regime? It's, it's hard to miss the fact that you've got these innocent journalists and aid workers being brutally murdered, having being decapitated live on camera. It's hard to miss that, isn't it, Joby? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think there were some people with who did go into this aware of the brutality, but also mindful of, of the experiences of, of Muslim minorities in Western countries where they came from, coming from Brussels or, or in Amsterdam, places where they always saw themselves as, as not really integrated into their sort of adopted countries, feeling that their cultural sensitivities were being ignored. So many of them had their own grievances, which helped kind of motivate them to move. But I do think a lot of them, and we've done interviews and also seen court documents where people describe for judges or legal authorities their personal journeys, and there's often this sort of naive sense that this was a part of history. This was something that was meant to be, and they just wanted to be part of it. And then almost without exception, at least the ones that talk about it, there is some regret getting there and discovering that it's just as corrupt and much more brutal than they imagined it would be. And of course, they took advantage of the fact that a number of young people, uh, teenagers, joined the organization, left homes, left their families, got on planes, and were never to return. So that is also a tragic part of it, although in a very different way. But tell us, take us to the, the final days of ISIS. How is it that this organization that you've taken us so far back into the 90s, its origins stem from there, how is it that it comes to an end? Well, this coalition eventually works. And it works, again, not just because of all these like-minded countries that wanted to see this thing eliminated, but because of some highly motivated foot soldiers on the ground. And I think in particular about sort of the, some of the Kurdish forces who became 
trained and equipped by Western countries and became the soldiers that drove ISIS back, but also the Iraqi troops. And so even although we're concerned about them for different reasons, Shia militias who were also part of this very broad coalition that took back town after town after town until there was no safe place left for this organization. As we know, ISIS didn't go away in part because they not just built a, didn't just build a physical caliphate, but they built a virtual one. And they became very sophisticated, very shrewd about creating a internet jihad space where they could call upon people who, who might see their ideas as appealing or recruit disaffected young people in countries all over the world. And the thing that was unique about ISIS was you didn't have to join the organization formally to be part of its army. You could carry out a terrorist attack and become a member of ISIS just through that act of violence and declare your allegiance even after the fact. And ISIS will, will say, yeah, he's part of our, our group. There's no secret password. There's no training and indoctrination. Just by committing an act of violence in the name of ISIS, you become part of its greater global army. And that legacy, unfortunately, still exists. And as we all know, every few months or, or even less frequently than that, we'll see some poor, disillusioned, messed up person commit a stabbing or shoot someone and ram someone with a car and then say, ISIS made me do it. And that, in that sense, the ISIS legacy continues. I couldn't agree more. I think we certainly see the legacies of ISIS in that way all around the world still today. It's still a name to which wannabe terrorist actors cling to as a means to gain some sort of level of legitimacy. But tell us about the leader of ISIS himself, al-Baghdadi. What happens to him? So Baghdadi, his empire is crumbling. He ends up moving from town to town with this coalition kind of hot at his heels. He's always been a bit of a recluse in the sense that he's never or very rarely shows his face. He doesn't do kind of video messaging that bin Laden certainly did. And instead kind of keeps to himself. He's of, as we think of it now, probably of limited operational importance because he was so deeply hidden, so far underground that it was hard to exert any real leadership if you're not ever being seen. But eventually we caught up with him. He went into hiding in northern Syria and in 2019, there was an intelligence breakthrough from, from local sources who happened to notice this unusual house, this compound with high security, with some obviously very important people hiding inside of it. And so there was really intense surveillance over that facility for a number of weeks. And finally, in October of 2019, there was a, a U.S. Special Forces raid that caught Baghdadi, and the U.S. forces were on their way to physically capturing him when he pulled out an explosive and, and killed himself and his family. And that was the end of him. Other ISIS leaders emerged. Others were quickly killed. And so to this day, we're not really sure who the leader of ISIS is because it's not a very safe position to hold because it seems pretty quickly you're found and then eliminated. And of course, by the time that Baghdadi is killed or takes his own life and the life of his family, ISIS had lost nearly all of the territory that they'd once held. All of those cities I mentioned before were freed, so to speak. That's over 7 million people, and it was the end of ISIS as we know it. Joby, thank you so much for taking us through this history today. I certainly didn't know that the history of ISIS went back to the 1990s and had so much trouble between them and Al-Qaeda, but thank you for, well, enlightening us to this history and this legacy of the Iraq War. Tell us, where can people read more about this history? Where can we read more of your work? 
Well, I really appreciate the chance to be with you, and thanks to everyone. So I must say, uh, as an author kind of touting a book, my 2015 book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, is, is sort of a character-driven narrative account about uh, the history of this group from its earliest days to, the, to sort of the founding figures, particularly Zarqawi, until the middle of 2015 when it was essentially in its heyday. But I also continue to report about it, about this group for the Washington Post. I have a, a new book that came out in 2021 that's called Red Line, which gets into some of the sort of the end game with ISIS. But it is a story that continues to evolve. And as you mentioned, the virtual caliphate still exists, and ISIS still has franchises, particularly in Africa, that are quite robust and continue to be a threat. So it's uh, the caliphate is no more, but ISIS, unfortunately, is still with us today. Well, Joby, thank you so much for your time, and you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.